This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Haunted by Slavery, a memoir of a Southern white woman in the freedom struggle by Gwendolyn Midlow Hall. Born in 1929 New Orleans to left-wing Jewish parents, Gwendolyn Midlow Hall's life spanned nearly a century of engagement in anti-racist internationalist political activism. In this moving and instructive chronicle of her remarkable life, Midlow Hall recounts her experiences as an anti-racist activist, a Communist Party militant, and a scholar of slavery in the Americas, as well as the wife and collaborator of the renowned African-American author and communist leader Harry Haywood, telling the story of her life against the backdrop of the important political and social developments of the 20th century, Midlow Hall offers an accessible and intimate examination of a crucial era in radical American history. Haunted by Slavery by Gwendolyn Midlow Hall, out now from Haymarket Books and available at haymarketbooks.org, where U.S. and U.K. readers receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £25, respectively. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This is the second in my two-part series on the crisis in higher education in the United States. This episode is my interview with Donna Murch and Todd Wolfson about how workers at Rutgers are pursuing an industrial unionism model that brings together all campus workers to challenge the neoliberal university and to fight to transform it into a democratic institution that serves the people. If you haven't listened to part one of this series, my interview with Dennis Hogan on the entire conjuncture, it's really so good, and I'm particularly glad to hear that so many academic workers in the UK are listening while on strike. Good luck and much solidarity to all of you. We also heard from a couple Canadian listeners, and I do want to acknowledge that your universities are also being corporatized in a really horrible way. America, it turns out, is not so exceptional. Whether you're in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., India, Brazil, or any of the many places where Dig listeners live, please take a quick moment to support us now at patreon.com slash the dig. Those contributions are what allow us to put every episode out free with no paywall so that all of you can afford to listen, regardless of your ability to pay. That's really important to us. And the reason that's possible is because those of you who can afford to contribute do so at patreon.com dot com slash the dig what's more we will send you a book or books in the mail a dig tote bag or a dig mug for coffee or whatever beverage you like if you contribute just ten dollars a month or more please contribute what you can now that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig so far we have net 15 new patrons this month net new patrons meaning new patrons minus people who have canceled their patronage that puts us a bit behind our goal to hit 40 new patrons this month, which we need to do to fund our upcoming special narrative series. So if you have not contributed yet and you can afford to do so and you love the dig, please take a quick moment and contribute now. Just hit pause, click that link in the show notes. Oh, and a contribution of any amount at all it gets you our weekly newsletter. 
emailed to your email inbox. You can peruse all of our newsletters alongside our vast archives at thedigradio.com. And you should check out the newsletters. They're really great companions to these interviews. But the reality is you will only really read that newsletter if we deliver it to you. So please contribute now. That's patreon.com slash the dig. Oh, and I forgot to include my interview in the Nation magazine. I forgot to include a link to that in the show notes last week, which I said I was doing. I will include it this week. It was a good interview, I think. Check it out. Okay, here's Donna Murch and Todd Wolfson. Donna Murch is a professor of history at Rutgers University, where she is president of the New Brunswick chapter of Rutgers AAUP AFT. Her newest book, Asada Taught Me, State Violence, Racial Capitalism, and the Movement for Black Lives, was published by Haymarket Books in March 2022. She is also the author of Living for the City, Migration, Education, and the Rise of the Black Panther Party in Oakland, California. Todd Wolfson is a professor in the Department of Journalism and Media Studies at Rutgers and has written and edited three books, Digital Rebellion, The Birth of the Cyberleft, The Great Refusal, Herbert Marcuse and Contemporary Social Movements, and The Gig Economy, Workers in the Media in the Age of Convergence. Todd is a co-founder of the Movement Alliance Project and 215 People's Alliance, and is vice president of Rutgers AAUP AFT. Donna Merch and Todd Wolfson, welcome to The Dig. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. Before we get to what's happening at Rutgers and at other public university systems today, let's start by discussing what Rutgers and other public universities were built to be. What, in other words, was the Fordist University at Rutgers and elsewhere? And then what does the neoliberal version of the university look like at Rutgers today and, and across the country? If you think about the big land-grant universities in the United States, UC Berkeley, University of North Carolina, the SUNY and CUNY system, that really going back to the early 20th century, they were seen as being absolutely essential to economic growth. And there was a real sense that the university was an important realm for upward mobility and for training a workforce. I think One of the things that we've seen in the neoliberal period is the rolling back of free higher education in the universities and the dismantling of the tenure system of permanent employment, which was really the fruit of a long struggle to provide academic freedom and job security. And of course, at a time at the height of the Cold War. So it was very important. What we've seen in the neoliberal period is a deeply indebting university where the students, in order to attend, have to take out enormous loans. And the replacement of a permanent protected class of academic workers with a contingent workforce that is really, I would almost make it akin to subcontracting. So they're still working for the university, but stripped of all the legal protections, both for academic freedom and for pay. So I would root it in its relationship with the undergraduates and the graduate students, that shift, as well as with its workers. Don is completely right. But I think it's important also that we recognize that when the university, in in this moment uh, post-World War II, when universities were moving towards being free, 
or very uh, cheap. There was a active move, and there's a lot of research now detailing an active move by leadership in California and other parts to rip that away from us. And that was people of color were largely getting access to free public higher ed, both in California and New York particularly, but also many other institutions were close to free. And so what became a divestment from public higher ed happened in the same moment that people of color were getting access. And that's really important. And it's not just that, it's also that it came on the heels of the long 60s, where our campuses were critical sites of organizing against the Vietnam War, for the civil rights movement and other movements. And there were many people watching that who said, that is not the kind of public higher ed we want. And so the divestment from public higher ed was also, it's important to note, a political and racially motivated move to divest. A concrete example of that, in the CUNY system, the first year that they implemented fees, the total numbers of Black and Latinx students went down by 50%. So uh, in the 80s, I was in touch with a lot of people for the Center for Puerto Rican Studies, and their analysis of the institution of fees was an argument that it was really a political attack on working class Black and brown students in New York. In 2020, the Rutgers faculty union that you both helped lead joined 19 other unions on campus to form the Coalition of Rutgers Union, which represents, I think, roughly 20,000 workers total. How normal is it for unions to work together like this across a university? Do dining hall workers and, and professors typically coordinate labor struggles in this way on campus? I would say no. And I, I mean, what we see in higher ed is in many places, a large percentage of the workers are just not organized. But then where they are organized, they're organized by craft or trade, by the job you do. So tenure-track faculty organize tenure-track faculty, grad workers organize grad workers, part-time or adjunct faculty organize adjunct faculty, professional staff organize professional staff, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And because we have been organized and categorized by the work we do, as opposed to all workers on our campuses, it's enabled management to play very smart divide and conquer strategies against us. And importantly, we have played into those strategies. So there are always counterexamples. Howard University in the 40s worked to organize a wall-to-wall union that died when the after World War II with the attacks on communists in the CIO. So there are counter moments, but the large tendency in higher ed is to organize in your category. I organize as a tenure-track faculty member, and I'm worried about other tenure-track faculty members, and I do not think about the professional staff or the dining staff or the adjunct faculty. Um, so by and large, it's not the norm. One of the things that made our organizing possible was the sheer pain of the pandemic. The com combination of that with uh, over 1,500 workers getting laid off and losing their children's tuition and their health insurance while COVID was hitting New York and New Jersey like a storm. So, you know, it was the, the real, the devastating conditions that set the stage for doing this. So the Rutgers Union was formed in 1970, but in the aughts, uh, Patrick Nolan, our executive director, 
of Rutgers AUP-AFT had worked to try to keep the different union presidents in touch with each other and to think about what their shared interests were. Todd, who's very modest, won't say this, but he was at the core of thinking about building this large wall-to-wall industrial vision and then putting all the sweat equity and care labor and how to create solidarity between the different partners who historically had tensions because of the differences in pay and status, say, between dining hall or maintenance work to tenured faculty. So the pandemic was this inflection point that made the coalition possible. How did you actually go about forming it? And then what demands did you come together to make? So the first thing is that we were constantly meeting all the time. (laughs) So during the pandemic, like starting in March, we were on Zoom calls. It felt like nine hours a day trying to rebuild trust within our own unit because Rutgers is unusual. There are a few other schools like Rutgers that have a broader base faculty grad union. So we have both lecturers and graduate students in our same union. So having all those job categories working together is important, but it can also create tension. So I would say the first thing was getting our house in order. And that took an enormous amount of work that uh, Todd can speak to in detail. At that time, I was the co-chair of the media committee, And that was also important because we were trying to figure out how to talk about what was happening at Rutgers and to create support in the press in order to pressure the administration to stop the layoffs. So one of the things that became really clear to me during the pandemic was that external media is crucial for internal workings of the union, both for recruitment and strengthening but trying to figure out ways to get people to use their time and donate their time. Yeah, the coalition of Rutgers unions did pre-exist the pandemic and bargain over, say, healthcare and a shared set of interests around healthcare. But the the reality was that there was difficult histories. We were, we, universities are extremely hierarchical institutions and the hierarchies in employment, um, tended to play out in the relationships among unions. And that that's just a reality that that all of us have to navigate when we're trying to organize bigger industrial sort of formations is that there's differences. And you have to be very attentive to those differences, differences in class and job category, differences in gender and uh, race, and those things play out. And organizing a bigger formation demands much more care and attention to those differences. But I'll just say in picking up on what Donna was laying out, which is I was at the time president of the full-time faculty and grad worker union, which was the biggest, but also by their standards, the most important because it had the faculty in it. And so they started reaching out and telling me, we're going to do X, Y, and Z. Layoffs of the most vulnerable with the least protections, adjuncts and dining staff and other more vulnerable staff. And then stealing raises from everybody and a few other things. And so we then said, okay, well, we need to start meeting all of us as leaders of all the workers and start to prepare a response and importantly, get our response out there into the public sphere before the university 
explains its intentions so that we can create a counter narrative that's up higher above the university's uh, narrative and plan. And, and so that's what we did. Many of us worked together from many unions. We created this people-centered approach to the pandemic and importantly, asking the most privileged, in this case, tenure track faculty to sacrifice something in order to build with the other categories of workers on the campus. And we can get into more details, but that opening facilitated a much, a lot more trust and a lot more capacity to build a bigger coalition of solidarity among the workforce. Yeah, let's get into more details. How, how did you sell that to tenure track faculty? And then by contrast, what were the obstacles in selling this kind of coalitional work to those more vulnerable workers who might not have been expecting a faculty union to be standing in solidarity with them, people people like dining hall staff? Well, the first thing that we did was that we changed our media strategy. So we started doing a lot of town halls and really working on promoting them in order to make visible the other job categories. So there's one town hall in particular that I remember that I think was in late March or early April. And I had just moved to Philly from New York. And as I said, the enormous human catastrophe going on in New York, I was devastated. I knew personally three people that had died in mid-March. And because New Jersey is so close to New York and also was one of the city's hardest hit in the very beginning of the pandemic, it was just this kind of whirlwind time of really catastrophe and pain. And so when we did these town halls, we had people from the other job categories talk about what was going on with them, people that had lost their jobs. We also had their children who had lost their tuition benefits come on. And it had a really strong and important effective dimension. That's still one of the most meaningful memories I have is listening to the stories of other people. And this had an amazing transformative effect. So in many ways, and I think this is true of many universities, uh, Rutgers is not singular in this, that people are aware of low-wage worker campaigns. They're aware that enormous amounts of labor goes into running a university. But there's this, it's a kind of social segregation of not really looking at all the work that's being done. And so uh, by the time we did a structure test in, I think it was November 2021, where we asked the faculty and grads which issues mattered to them most. And that survey, number one on that list, was preventing any more layoffs. So we used a program that is similar to Kurzarbeit in Germany, where institutions or businesses could go to the federal government to get funds for a structured furlough program where workers would agree to be furloughed, and in return, layoffs would be prevented. So we had a combination of using this media strategy for our own membership, and then a policy solution, figuring out how to have a concrete program of solidarity where the full-time faculty agree to furloughs, but they were made whole through New Jersey unemployment insurance combined with this money coming from the Department of Labor. It was an enormous 
administrative lift for the union, but it was built on precisely trying to translate solidarity and the protecting of the most vulnerable into a concrete program. Yeah, and it wasn't a clean struggle. Uh, So we came together, all 20 unions, we agreed on this strategy. We put forward the people-centered approach, which was we will work share, which is, as Donna said, the equivalent of of a furlough, except people were kept whole through through state and federal unemployment. But we would do this on serious conditions, the condition of no layoffs, the condition of extensions for our doctoral students who couldn't do their research, the condition of COVID testing in the communities, and the condition of not stealing all of our raises. And at first they said no. And then when they said no, they, they proceeded to lay off adjunct faculty and dining staff. And they basically threatened the dining staff with wholesale layoffs, basically the destruction of the union, unless they agreed to partial layoffs and an extended contract with very little in the way of raises from multiple years. So the university basically hung a sword over their head and said, either you do what we say or we are going to devastate you. And to be honest, the, the, the dining staff union had no choice but to take that deal. And so when we fi- we did finally win Let's say we're in June of 2020 when the pandemic's at its height. That's when they do all these layoffs and don't take our our proposal. We finally won it maybe in six to nine months later in February of 21. Some folks had lost their jobs, but it was very much built on we all have to sacrifice and those who are most privileged need to lead in sacrificing. And I think even tenure track faculty bought into that. They bought into that. They may have grumbled about having to do uh, unemployment in New Jersey. (laughs) There was plenty of grumbling, Uh, but they did buy into the vision. Rewinding a little bit, was your union always left-led and and militant, or has your leadership team, has it entailed a transformation of the union of sorts? The answer is yes. (laughs) 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 Um, So I've been at Rutgers since 2004. And I'm in the history department. Todd is in media studies. And for reasons that I guess we will discover when we finally write a true history of our union, those two departments have been really important to the union from the beginning. So when I first came, a senior distinguished professor was the president of the union, Rudy Bell. And he is the one that affiliated our AAUP with AFT. But when I first came, the union was really run by senior white male faculty, many of them full and distinguished. It was a service union, to be fair to them. It wasn't only a bread and butter union, but because it was run by the most senior, highly paid faculty, I think they tended to focus primarily on on raises and the core issues of the senior faculty. But this strategy... Uh, really fell apart in the aftermath of 2008 financial crisis. So Rutgers, even before the 2008 collapse, we had our phones taken out. We had extreme austerity. We were we had a furlough forced Your on us. Your phones taken out? <laughs> yes. What? 
Unfortunately, many people I know across the country in public universities had this happen. You know, so like the local telephone company had these contracts with the university. They were voided. And so for a period of two or three years there, we didn't have any phones in our offices. The only phones were the staff phones. So you'd actually see faculty going into the department in order to use the phones of the staff because you know, this is before smartphones. At the time, I actually didn't even have a cell phone. I had to buy one. So we had really, really harsh austerity. And I think in 2010 or 2011, there was a contract where we had our cost of living raises taken out. And there was a series of dissidents in the union that didn't support it, but their numbers were too small. But we had a left takeover that happened, I think I would date it in 2014. It was led by our previous president, Deepa Kumar. And this is around the period that we were recruited into the union. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think a couple things influenced it beyond just the 8-9 economic crisis. One was I think we watched Chicago Teachers Union and we were in awe of their victories, their way of building with the community. And that was really important. But then the other thing that made our union become more militant and more well-organized was management or the administrations of universities across the country are really bad. They're neoliberal, but ours, it wasn't, is particularly bad. And so, as they say, necessity is the mother of invention. We we organized and got strong because we had a particularly bad boss that pushed us to build more militancy, to be able to build the power to strike back. It might be a very different environment. and Maybe Donna and I wouldn't be uh, union organizing now if it wasn't for a very aggressive administration at Rutgers that really pushed us and those who preceded us like Deepa to say that this union needs to fight and fight hard. So it was conditions at Rutgers that became important to the left taking over the union, but also the election of Trump played a really important role because some of the staff that were recruited around this period, 2014, 2015, they came in And they had a real vision that unions should be places of politics, not just places of struggle over the conditions of work. And so when Trump was elected, you can imagine, this is New Jersey. It has one of the largest immigrant populations in the country. Our students were devastated in class. And the union led a march against the Muslim ban that over 3,000 people participated in. And it was that intervention of it being really the voice of opposing the new administration, opposing racism, opposing white nationalism and white supremacy. I think even though I'd been recruited earlier than that, that's really the period where I agreed to go into the leadership. And that's true of many of the people that are now on the executive council and part of leading the union but there's there's also this problem with higher ed unions, and one of the reasons they've been less effective, particularly unions that represent tenured faculty, is that faculty think they're far too important to actually play more than the two-year role in leading their union because they, their writing is going to change the world so much that they need to get back to their desks. And so, you know, it, it, faculty don't see themselves as above being part of the workforce. And so actually leading the union for a long time is, I don't, it's sneered uh, upon. I don't feel that way. I don't think there's anything I can imagine that's more 
uh, rewarding and productive than being part of a labor leader in one of the most militant sectors in the country right now. But that's not traditionally how it's seen. So I also think like it led to like a bloodless uh, revolution more or less because, yeah, the people who had led it were like, I did my time. I'm out. Who wants to take it next? Hot potato. I think so. I also think that, and this goes back to the origins of the union in 1970, you know, Rutgers is a very left-leaning school. I'm in the history department, and I think it's one of the most left departments in the country, if not the most. You know, we had two members of the Communist Party, including Eugene Genovese, before he turned into what he later turned into. You know, E.P. Thompson came to Rutgers in the 60s when he couldn't get other appointments, George Chauncey in the 1980s. So there's a left DNA inside Rutgers in the state of New Jersey. And of course, most importantly of all, the great Paul Robeson. So I think that there was always two different tendencies in the union, left and liberal. And the way that I understand it, and especially under Todd's presidency, I think these two kinds of approaches and forces have to negotiate inside the union. But I think that, I mean, we're influenced by the great traditions of the left. And so we do, we recruit people, we do leadership development. And I, in turn, was recruited and Todd was recruited. So that piece matters. It was bloodless, but I do think we put a lot of effort into finding other people that are aligned, not just ideologically, but aligned with willing to do the work, willing to do the nitty gritty, and to be have members lead the union and not staff. You mentioned the Chicago Teachers Union, Todd, as a, as a key point of inspiration. And, and the coalition has embraced this model of unionism known as bargaining for the common good, which first, I believe, emerged from that very same militant and left-led CTU. What is bargaining for the common good? What does it look like at the university level? How common is it at the university level? And then how does that compare to what we've seen really powerfully in the K through 12 context over the past decade or so? I'd say to me, there's two principles that it rests on. One is that you want to organize workers as their whole selves. This is like a Jay McAlevey thing that you don't want to organize somebody only with respect to their employer, but also respect to their life outside of work, their housing, their rent, their uh, ability to survive and thrive in the communities where they live. So, So that's one piece of it. And the second piece is that the moment of bargaining a contract is a moment when unions have immense amounts of leverage and we need to expand what we demand and who we're demanding it for using that leverage to bring in larger circles of solidarity. So in this case, uh, the case of a university, it could be bargaining and making demands for our students and particularly our undergrad students. So in the University of Illinois, Chicago faculty union just went on strike and they came back from a successful five-day strike or so. And one of the core demands they had at the end was more money for mental health counseling for our undergraduate students. Now, the employer will tell you, you have no right to bargain over a student mental health in the contract. But then the teacher will respond at at the university level, these are my students. I have every right to demand that they are taken care of by this university, and particularly in a moment of great social, political, economic dislocation that was wrought by the pandemic, we need more mental health support. And they actually won that. And from our vantage, we're in the middle of a contract campaign, and we're working very deeply in New Brunswick. 
which is a largely undocumented Spanish-speaking community, and we're making demands that connect our students to the community around housing. Rutgers is the largest landlord, so we're demanding that Rutgers institute a rent freeze that would help our undergraduate students, our graduate students, our postdocs, but would also have a knock-on effect of bringing down rents across New Brunswick um, that would be great for the communities where we work. That's so fascinating because the housing crisis is obviously top of mind all over the country right now. And just recently in the UC grad students strike, the demand to pay grad students enough so that they could afford sky high rents was core to the struggle there. The other piece I would add is that there was a struggle that took place during the pandemic that also relates to our wall to wall and industrial vision, which is that there was an elementary school called Lincoln Annex that was shut down because Barnabas, the medical corporation that's intertwined with Rutgers, wanted to use that space to to turn it into a cancer research institute. But the majority of the population in New Brunswick is Latinx, very, very recent immigrants, and potentially, if not majority, very significant minority of people that are undocumented. So this was devastating because this was a very, very good school that served these children, but transportation was an issue also because people were undocumented. So the nice thing about the school is that it was located inside people's neighborhoods. They could walk there. So when they shut it down and they were going to move it into this horrible location much further away in a temporary shelter where it would force the parents, if they didn't have cars, to have to take buses and to create an extra level of vulnerability and risk. So that fight to keep open Lincoln Annex and to have a proper institution that would replace it was something that we were involved in over the pandemic. So extending those bounds of the campus to think about the populations that are in and around the campus. On campus, the coalition is not demanding a return to some some purported golden age of faculty governance, but is instead looking forward to a model of shared governance with staff and students. What does that ideal type of faculty governance look like? And did it ever really exist in the way that we might imagine? And then what, by contrast, would would shared governance, sharing governance among the, I think, 100,000-odd people who make up Rutgers faculty, staff, and students, what would that mean? So I think that there is a lot of writing that talks about a golden age when faculty, tenured faculty in particular, really shared governance with administration. I don't think it ever truly existed well. And I think when it did exist, it existed largely for white men who were tenured track faculty. And it it wrote out a lot of parts of both the faculty, but the broader folks that kept the university running. And so I think it's an imaginary more than it has been like a material fact. But nonetheless, the imaginary is useful to invoke and to build upon and say, we want to look at what that imaginary was to see what we could do that's better and more inclusive and builds on those ideals. And so for us, the way Rutgers is governed now, there's an administrative body, including the president and the people he appoints that have a lot of authority within the university. And then there's a board of governors that's appointed by the governor and the state legislature, more or less. So the people who get on our board of governors today, the last person who got on, or maybe two ago, the person who got on was the person who gave the most money to the football team. Now, 
that's well and good for recruiting more money to the football team, but that person doesn't know how to run a higher ed institution and should not be one of the key deciding votes on questions of budget or curriculum or hiring or firing of the next president. It doesn't make sense. The people who should be there, it should be a democratized institution like all of our economy. And in that sense, the people who should run it should be elected from the faculty and the staff and the student body to run the institution. And so that's our imagination of what true shared governance would look like. And it needs to have real teeth. We don't want an advisory body. We want a body with decision-making power. We've seen this in two different ways. So in Northern Europe, we've seen workers' assemblies where workers are elected onto the boards of the most important companies in those sectors where they work, whether it's auto or industrial. And Germany is one of the leaders in this. And those workers have critical roles in decision-making about the job that go way beyond the contract. So where we are governed is where our contract begins and ends, uh, how much we're paid, sabbatical, academic freedom. But then beyond that, we, we don't have true governance role. In Germany, in, the wor- in workers' councils, they have true governance over many, a much larger breadth of the realities of the corporation because they have more expertise. That's one model. A second model is the universities in Mexico and in South America, which are autonomous universities, where the governing boards are voted to lead by that member of the workforce. So there's faculty appointees, there's undergrad appointees, there's staff appointees, and together they run the university. The most famous is University of Mexico, the Autonomous University of Mexico, the one in Mexico City. It has its own budget and it determines, the workers and students determine that budget and they hire the president. Um, And that's the kind of governance we think our higher ed institutions need in the U.S. Todd, you you said in a Boston Review interview with with Astra Taylor, quote, the large majority of these top-level administrators are not part of the professoriate, and they don't come out of the teaching faculty. The managers that run the university are accountants, lawyers, and human relations bureaucrats. This situation has come to a head at Rutgers during the pandemic. There were almost no teaching faculty involved in any of the critical decisions made around COVID-19. We hear about administrative bloat all the time, but what it, what in practice has it looked like at Rutgers, both as a drain on scarce financial resources, but also, as you're pointing to here, Todd, in terms of university governance? So with respect to the drain on university resources, when we watch our university and we watch where it grows and where new appointments are made, what we've seen actually from 2012 forward is that administrative faculty as part of like central administration that are not part of any of the departments, don't do any of the teaching or research that makes the university run. That is the sector of the university that grew. It grew, it doubled. So I think the people making $300,000 or more in the central administration doubled from 2012 to 2022. And they make no money to be clear. They bring no money into the university. They, t- they tax all of the departments, all of the labs, all the tuition, and they take that for themselves, and then they redistribute it out as they see fit. And so they are by far the biggest drain on the resources of the university, alongside, in our particular case, athletics, which has also been a pretty big drain. And so that's a problem. 
But I think, as you sort of signaled, the far bigger problem is how decisions have been made at the university. So during the pandemic, when we put forward this people-centered approach that would stop layoffs, I was basically the chief negotiator with the other unions, with the administration on what is to be done and how we could negotiate a solution. I sat across the table. There was never one person in that room that came from the faculty. It was, as I said, lawyers and accountants. And those lawyers and accountants made every... It wasn't that they were just making decisions about the budget. They were making decisions about whether an international grad student could teach remotely from their home country in the middle of a pandemic. That is not the job or role of a lawyer to make. A lawyer could give advice on that, but an academic leader must make that decision. And at Rutgers, they no longer made those decisions because the previous president, Bob Barchi, atrophied that part of the university and it's gotten much weaker, whereas the Office of General Counsel has grown immensely. And as it grew, it's taken more of the areas of decision making into its own domain. And so that's a battle inside our university, but it's a battle across all universities. Who makes decisions, why and how and towards what ends? We hear a lot about the increasing importance of, of diversity, equity and inclusion or DEI, both both from its advocates and detractors. How do you think about how to navigate between, on the one hand, these neoliberal administrators who champion the idea of diversity while practicing simultaneously austerity? And on the other, reactionaries who attack the university as a site of hyper-woke cultural Marxism. What sort of substantive questions around justice does that kind of dialectic obscure? Well, it's that's a very hard question to answer. At the historical moment that we're in right now, and this is very true about Rutgers, we're seeing a wave of Black presidents at major universities right now. Rutgers currently has its first Black president, Jonathan Holloway, who was previously the provost at Northwestern, Dwight McBride at the New School, and others. And we're in a moment after the largest protest movement in U.S. history, if you count that just by bodies on the street. So the New York Times said up to 26 million people went out on the street to protest the killing of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and many, many others, roughly between spring and early July in 2020. So I think that this was part of a longer, I would date it going back probably to the killing of Oscar Grant in 2009, but I think most people associate it with the killing of Trayvon Martin and Ferguson. But we have watched mass protests and organizing over the last almost 13 or 14 years around questions of white supremacy, white nationalism, and state violence. So that has created a condition where this is influencing all different parts of the United States. And I think in the case of Rutgers, in our 2019 contract campaign, we won $20 million for diversity and we won these, these are, again, our transformational demands, a pay equity process that focused on pay equity on the basis of gender and campus. So these were demands that were rooted in questions of race and gender and equity. And I think that there was a hope on the part of the administration that by bringing in 
people of color that this would in some ways help mute the organizing of the union. But one of the things I'm very proud of is that we have many people of color in the leadership of our own union, and we care deeply about the material life of race. So I would phrase it differently than just thinking about, you know, neoliberal DEI. I think that the deep, deep material conditions have always underwritten what race is in the United States. And in order to organize and also to recruit, I wouldn't have come into the union if there wasn't a deep commitment to fighting racial capitalism and fighting racial inequity. So that's how I prefer to think of it. You know, being in a union helps you truly learn what coalition is and solidarity. And I think that one of the battles inside unions today is to deal with how race and gender have made unions undemocratic. The thing that I've been struck by now, with the help of my comrade here and other comrades, I ran for the uh, AUPAFT National Board, and also in our own building coalition, seeing how many unions have almost no women of any color and people of color in their leadership. So that's what I would like to focus on, the problems of unions having been sites, especially of white male power. This fight is not over. It is still an enormous problem trying to find unions that are working on leadership development and recruiting into the leadership people that resemble the workforce itself. The one thing I'll flag is that the university is going to be a central site in this battle moving forward. In the same week that the grads in the UC went on strike is the same week that Governor DeSantis both attacked tenure for faculty in Florida and then also has attacked the content of classes in higher ed. And so in the moment of greater militancy, there's also a moment of regressive attacks on our higher ed institutions. And so to me, that means that higher ed and our big universities and colleges are going to be a bellwether of this fight in years to come. But that said, I think our approach is how do we build a wall-to-wall formation at Rutgers and in other higher ed unions? And that means attention to difference. You cannot possibly organize faculty, grads, postdocs, adjunct faculty, Uh, professional staff, dining staff, coaches, groundskeepers, without an attention to the multiple differences that actually uh, accumulate alongside job category because of the larger gendered and raced uh, exclusions in our country. And so we could only organize with uh, attention to those things deeply rooted in our work, or we'd never be able to build across a multifaceted workforce. And so that has to be the center of our thinking, racial solidarity, gendered solidarity, how it moves through and with the union. We can't have a bigger agenda without having that be central to our agenda. I'm Astra Taylor, and you're listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, a podcast that helps us understand the past so we can organize for a better future. That's why you should support the show at patreon.com slash the dig. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is David Harvey's Companion to Marx's Grundrisse, 
David Harvey's companion to Marx's Grundrisse, builds upon his widely acclaimed companions to the first and second volumes of Capital in a way that will reach as wide an audience as possible. Marx's stated ambition for this text, where he was thinking aloud about some of the possible metamorphoses of capitalism, is to reveal, quote, the exact development of the concept of capital as the fundamental concept of modern economics, just as capital itself is the foundation of bourgeois society. David Harvey pithily illustrates the relevance of Marx's text to understanding the troubled state of contemporary capitalism. Companion to Marx's Grundrisse by David Harvey. Out now from Verso Books. What has the casualization of, of academic labor looked like at Rutgers? What what percentage of courses are currently taught by tenure-track faculty? And then how is that situation, certainly not unique to Rutgers, how has that shaped your strategy of industrial unionism? I teach in the history department, which has historically been a very, very well-funded department that continues to hire and sustain its numbers. So we have almost no contingent faculty. We have one longtime lecturer and then one or two PTLs. However, this is something that I've seen through our union organizing. There are many departments in Camden, for example, where it is almost entirely PTL faculty. So... Adjuncts are uh, central, but they're also, I think that they tend to be concentrated in departments that have been historically and presently underfunded. So it's not equally distributed. And I think that's a good way to even spatialize it and think about why you have larger numbers of contingent faculty and in some places rather than others, and how that also maps on to the structural defunding of places like Camden that have the largest numbers of Black students. In terms of strategy, and this predates our period in the union, but some of the union pressure and organizing across job categories has led to more of the PTL lines in the past having been converted to NTT lines. However, Again, the crisis of the pandemic, initially in April 2020, the administration announced that it was going to eliminate all part-time lecturers. That was its original announcement. And then the union, you know, moved into place and started fighting that, and then they reduced it down to 20%. But if you look at the overall employment of what happened to Rutgers during the pandemic, all categories of workers went down 20%. So we are on a skeleton staff, and we especially have been losing a lot of administrative staff. So this is an ongoing battle. Yeah, and I would add, to understand the casualization, in the 70s, 75% of instruction was done by tenure stream faculty. And now I think the number is 28 or 29% of teaching at Rutgers is done by tenure stream faculty. So it's a complete reversal in numbers, right? The flip in how casualization has emerged. And I think what's important here to note is that universities, they're addicted to short-term contracts that are low wage, right? They are addicted to it. They want to keep their adjuncts. They want to hire them a week before classes start, 
right? When they know how everything's played out, they want to pay them as little as possible. And then they want to have them off the books with no responsibility to them and or benefits for them by the end of that semester. And that is, I mean, if you just think about K-12, you would never get away with that kind of a work relationship to 2,000 workers at Rutgers are under those conditions. And then that leads us finally to a strategy. And I think the only strategy moving forward is a wall-to-wall strategy. You have to understand the problem in higher ed. The problem in higher ed is the growth of neoliberal neoliberal vision of our universities and a culling down of the amount of costs of the workforce and an ability to grow endowments, et cetera. And if you know what their core goal is and their core vision is, then you understand that the only way to fight back against that is all workers together. Because if you fight only as tenure-track faculty, you can only fight defensive battles to protect your line. Same with adjunct faculty, same with grad workers, same with staff. But if we begin to see that the battle, they're attacking all of us in different ways, then we begin to see that the only solution is a collective response. So in teaching, I think the response is to tear down the multi-tiered university with all of its very variations between the hierarchy of tenure track faculty and distinguished faculty next to the lack of uh, security for our adjunct faculties and start to build a university where everyone is equally valued. And that's a long project, obviously. You know, one of the effects of 2020, especially, and when we were all meeting around the clock, I mean, we literally were having meetings all the time and we were working on media and working on our town halls and, you know, it was a constant frenetic engagement. And for that reason, the pandemic for me wasn't as bad as it was for some people. It was a real time of revelation and learning and growing because of this labor struggle. But one of the things that I've learned through being in dialogue with the graduate students and with the contingent faculty is a different way to understand the future. So I think that for tenure track faculty, there's this magical realism that's also based in, you know, wanting to have hope for our students that somehow maybe in the future we'll be able to get some more tenure track lines and that pits individual departments against one another. You have to cultivate relationships with the deans. Celebrity becomes important. So they're neoliberal metrics that if your department is a, you know, rises in the U.S. News and World Report or is particularly uh, visible, then you can get more money. So there's this really brutal struggle between departments to try to get those tenure track lines in which you make the rich richer and the poor poorer. But I think especially one of our grad organizers, Ian Gavigan, and some of the PTLs talked to me about what their their vision for the future is, which is instead of imagining that somehow we're going to get tenure track lines back, we're going to put our core efforts into organizing the contingent faculty and building in the components of tenure, starting with longer contracts, starting with benefits, providing opportunities for people to have review and promotion. And that's what I've been watching as our strategy, you know, over these years, which is fighting to organize the contingent faculty and that this is our true hope for the future. That's the only way that I see our graduate students having a future that they deserve. Donna, in a Guardian article, you wrote, quote, the Chicago Teachers Union and the Rutgers Coalition of Unions points towards a burgeoning 
21st century industrial unionism, in which public schools, college campuses, and the care sector are understood as the lifeblood of local communities and regional economies, just as the heavy industries of steel, automobile, and manufacture once were. This has me thinking about Gabe Winant's book, The Next Shift, in part, Donna, because I just saw you uh, use that book as one of the many you are stacking your cell phone on top of to to record yourself. But that book talks about how, how the move from industry to eds and meds has remade the working class in places like Pittsburgh, and also, I imagine, in places like like Newark. What does that economic transformation mean for workers? And then what are its implications for the labor movement, including how we even conceive of who workers are and and what the labor movement is. I think that one of the things, the battles we have to fight is a narrow definition of who a worker is based on a white male breadwinner ideal. Uh, I grew up in Erie, Pennsylvania, which is a very, very working class place that suffered enormous abandonment of industry, you know, over my lifetime, it's lost 100,000 people. So it went from being 170,000 to being 50,000. And one of the lessons of having grown up in a place like that, a city that was heavily unionized, but that the unions also excluded people of color, was seeing the dangers, not only for populations of color, but for the unions themselves, that their own exclusion weakened them because it created the conditions for strike-breaking and also for public opposition to unions. And our city also went through that transformation of being really extractive industry, castings, foundries, something even dirtier than steel, more toxic in commodity chemicals, and seeing that transformed into healthcare, you know, not-for-profit, both Catholic and secular hospitals. I think that the first battle is just to remake who we think a worker is and to recognize that women are so central in the labor movement right now. Uh, People use the term the feminization of work, which I'm not sure I like because certainly Black women have worked from the very beginning and women work and unpaid work is also work. But I do think that especially in those periods in the 80s and 90s with the loss of jobs in heavy industry and the newer jobs in higher education, public sector, and eds and meds, that the core task was that shift from the production of commodities to service workers. And I think I would include, I see the university also, we are also service workers. So putting effort into organizing those kinds of workers. And an interesting question, I think, about, you know, the loss of industry and the transformation of cities like, you know, Gabe Winans in Pittsburgh or me coming from Erie, Pennsylvania or Youngstown, Philadelphia or Newark is what those economies look like after that transformation. I think it's partially an ideological battle because part of the expression of white supremacy is the notion that white work matters more. White workers matter more. And I see that as particularly having been a battle in kind of the politics of the left, especially during the election of Trump. So trying to figure out how to build bonds of solidarity between other service workers and the university. 
Well, relatedly, and not to keep citing Gabe Wynett, but the the coalition of Rutgers Union seems like precisely the sort of model for how to go about building this alliance between the professional, so-called professional managerial class or PMC, and the working class that we need to rebuild the labor movement and also in doing so to, to build and ultimately win left power. How have the economic transformations that we've seen in recent decades and, and universities place within all that changed the relationship between the working and professional classes, including perhaps by, by blurring the lines between them, as we see even jobs like professor being proletarianized? And am I right to see, see your work as part of that larger project of building that coalition? I would say absolutely. We think that the only way to move forward is to build an alliance between, I mean, what we would think of as the multivariegated working class within an institution, or we could call it the PMC and the more proper working class. And I'm comfortable with that, but I also think of it as the variegated working class, some with more privileges and some with less, not all structurally situated the same but all with a vested interest in transformation. The, for the longest time, tenure-track faculty, if we stay at the university for a minute, but we could talk about our big medical institutions and doctors in a similar way, but tenure-track faculty have not recognized themselves as part of the workforce. They have been told that they're special and important and their individual labor is so critical that they're not actually cogs in the wheel, there's something that exists outside that. But over the last 30 years with the growth of this bureaucratic class and the attacks on tenure, which come in the form of less tenure track positions as Donna noted, but also less ability to impact the way our institutions are run, faculty have begun to see that we've been sitting in a pot of boiling water for a long time and we just didn't realize it. And so these conditions, the conditions of downward mobility, which Donna flagged earlier, are conditions that create an opening in a similar way to the way the most skilled craftsmen became uh, de-skilled by transformations in the industrial sector, which made them more open to organizing with, quote, semi-skilled or, quote, unskilled uh, workers in factories and created an opening for a new united front in those factories that fought over the future of our industrial core. We, I would argue we could potentially be in a very similar moment where the professional managerial class is being undermined and de-skilled in a different way, but with similar outcomes. And that creates an opening for a new different form of collectivity. I've never been a big fan of the PMC formulation because so many people are included in it. And I think it ends up also reifying, like, why is a plumber more working class than a social worker? It's, that's not clear to me. And I think this stuff often maps along racial and gender lines, especially in the trades that were the most discriminatory and remain the whitest and the most male. Uh, I've had many people call me PMC who are also professors, which I'm always amused by. I'm like, you teach at a private institution, I teach at a public institution, but I'm the PMC and you're not because you are fetishizing particular vision of labor. So... The economic transformation of the university, one thing that's happening is that the space between the privates and the publics is getting wider and wider and wider. So we're in a top research one university, but our library has been gutted. We don't have the core publications that we should. We don't have the Amsterdam News before 1975. So this 
takeover of the upper level administration controlling also academic decisions, like we had a firing of many, many librarians, taking the ordering of books away from librarians. So we're seeing an attack on the core institutions that are needed for a university to function, along with this economic restructuring towards uh, an enormous number of vulnerable contingent faculty. So I think that that has been at Rutgers, which is a research one university, but is a state institution with a continual decrease in our funding, being able to admit fewer and fewer graduate students per year, and then not having the library and other institutions that we need. I think that that has helped to radicalize the faculty I think another issue is really the attack on the staff. So part of the attack on faculty is taking away the administrative staff that are so essential to the functions that we do. And the final thing I would say is that one of the nice things about being involved in the union and why I'm so invested in it is that it allows me to reconnect having come from a working class background, working class city with organizing and reclaiming that space of work and broadening the university from only dealing with other professors and different departments to really focusing on the workers. And personally, that's just been enormously satisfying for me. It's made it possible for me to connect with the university and not find it such an alienating place. Oh, that's really nice. I, I want to ask about the university as an environment that's been so conducive historically, to, to different forms of student radicalism. Something, Donna, I think that you talk about in, in Living for the City in terms of the, the collegiate milieu that, that aspects of the Black Panther Party emerged from. What is that longer history of, of university-based student radicalism? And what, and what does student radicalism on campus look like today? Is, is it connecting up with these labor struggles? Or has the market disciplining of students by debt had an impact? on the militancy and ambitions of, of, of student politics? Educational institutions across the board have been very important for the left. So, you know, we're talking about universities, but we could be talking about study groups or even literacy training, literacy programs. A lot of people don't know it, but part of what led to the San Francisco State strike was the San Francisco students uh, working as tutorers in Hunter's Point. And it was that process of meeting the young people in Hunter's Point and seeing how poor public education was in this city, that that was a core site of politicization. You know, we all know, of course, with uh, modernization theorists like Samuel Huntington, who saw literacy as, as really the province of the left, that when literacy rates rise, so do supports for left-wing movement. So that's part of the deep DNA of the left, I think, in all different parts of the world in different time periods. In terms of thinking about the 20th century, the public universities were very important for those post-war social movements that were utterly transformative. They were important for the civil rights movement, the students that were involved coming from the North to the South, the mobilization of students in historically Black colleges, in the case of the Black Panther Party, you have a working class migration during World War II because the shipyards were segregated in the Gulf Coast. So a lot of the skilled workers from New Orleans and Texas and Arkansas migrated to the West Coast in order to get jobs. It's their children 
gaining access to, first of all, attendance to high school. Part of the effect of segregation in the South was how taxes were used to pay for public education. And only a third of Black communities in these segregated states had access to high school. So if you want to look at the genesis of the Panther Party, and it's not only the Panthers, it's also true of people in the free speech movement, of white ethnics like Mario Savio, gaining access to education became a site of politicization, especially for those who weren't coming from elite families. It's just very similar what happened to me when I went to college. You know, they start reading Marx, they start study groups. They start hearing alternate trajectories from the Cold War United States. So the short answer is that the Black Panther Party started with a study group at Merritt College, which was a community college in West Oakland. And in the post-war period, all over the world, you see a doubling of the student age population. So there's a structural piece that had to do with that post-war baby boom. But It goes back to something I was saying earlier, that this is at a time where, you know, a Keynesian vision of the state was present, where large state institutions were important to economic development. So even in the context of the Cold War, you had lots of money being channeled into the University of California and other state systems. The thing that I think is beautiful about this story is that, you know, at a place like UC Berkeley which was part of where the Panther study group came from. This is part of a Cold War economy. So like in the very heart of UC Berkeley, which was so core to the Manhattan Project and to the American defense, you have an enormous anti-war movement that emerges, which creates coalitions between white students at Berkeley and the small numbers of Black students at Berkeley, and then working-class Black populations 15 minutes south in Oakland. So I think in an anti-communist country like the United States that has such a long tradition of anti-union and attacks on the left, the university has been a central platform and institution of the left. And I think that the attack that we're seeing on CRT today that connects in a direct line from the university to this, you know, fear that you had 26 million people, the majority of them white, going out on the street to talk about Black Lives Matter and state violence, that they're looking to the university. And there's a portion of that, honestly, that I think is true. Not in the way that they mean it in terms of mentioning slavery as a form of critical race theory, um, but the university has been an important incubator of political ideas. And I've never liked this pitting against unions versus universities. I think in an anti-communist country like the United States, we have to take and support and nurture left platforms and public spaces where we can find them. What I would say about our campuses today is that organizing has looked somewhat different over the last decade. You know, there has been a convergence with the movements of the day, Occupy, Black Lives Matter, uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline. And that's been really important. But another thing that I think we're starting to see, which is undergrads uh, returning to labor militancy, undergrads organizing around their work conditions on campuses. I think at Kenyon, we saw undergrads organize a new union. Um, I think at Dartmouth, it's also happening students who are working on our campuses at Starbucks 
organizing around the condition of Starbucks on our campuses. And so I do think that there's a real opening to OI our undergrad students with the rest of the workforce around work conditions. I don't think that's the only thing we want to see our students organize around because in many ways they provide a moral vision for a better union and having them lead there is really important. But I think also fighting over the material work conditions that they they experience on their campuses is really important. And, and Rutgers is very diverse. And many students were first generation. And many of the students that I teach are working 20 hours a week while taking four, five, six classes at once. And so whether they're working on campus or they're working at the Target down the street, being involved in organizing their workplace alongside taking their classes and thinking about the kind of world they want, it seems like a really important way forward. And I'll add that here in Providence, Rhode Island, undergraduate teaching assistants at Brown University who, who, who do TA work in the Department of Computer Science are organizing with the graduate labor organization here. Which is fabulous. And with the union, I think we have short and long-term goals. So our short-term goal is fighting with our contract campaign and our coalition. But I think for me, one of the longer-term goals with the union is to figure out how to truly articulate that relationship between undergraduates and the university. It really, it's the relationship between different staff, but the core articulation is with students and their families. And Rutgers is a working class, lower middle class, you know, uh, school of many of our students live at home because they can't afford to live in the dorms. So I see this as an enormously important place to develop and support. It takes a lot of work because, of course, an undergraduate generation is five years or so, you know, between four and six years. So figuring out how to build long-term relationships, but I think that's absolutely key. And wedding our union to the prevention of tuition hikes and actually trying to roll back tuition and fight nationally for free higher education. What's the political program and theory of change to remake both Rutgers and public higher ed generally? Because you can't go after a public employer like Rutgers in exactly the same way that workers at an elite private would go after their boss. You you all need the legislature and governor, if not the federal government, to, to act, which I think really makes your work necessarily more politically expansive. So Look, we are in the middle of a contract campaign. It's likely that we will strike in late March or April, and hopefully adjunct faculty, full-time faculty, grad workers, postdocs, and professional staff, and medical uh, faculty that are not clinicians will all go out together. That's not the goal. We want to win a fair contract, but given the way the university is responding to our critical demands, it looks more and more likely. Um, but even if we win the perfect contract that mirrors all of our initial proposals, the crisis within public higher education remains. In fact, we cannot solve many of the issues. We cannot solve the job crisis that our doctoral students face with not enough openings for the many PhDs that come out of higher ed every year. We cannot solve that at Rutgers alone. And so I think we are thinking about this as a multi-tiered effort. At one level, and probably the fundamental level, we need strong organizations in higher ed that organize with the wall-to-wall vision um, on our campuses and that fight for all of us. And in those fights, we need to, as you already noted, build a political vision and political platform that recenters the university in the life of the state, 
so that we can win uh, the imagination of the role of public higher ed and private higher ed, for that matter, in the life of New Jersey. And if you go back historically, you see that in the golden age of the universities, which has its problems, the university played a more central role in the aspirations of the state. And that's embedded in things like the Wisconsin idea, which was an idea about the role of the University of Wisconsin in bettering the state, which led to all sorts of important new legislation that came out of the university, like workers' compensation, or ultimately many of the New Deal bills were written by faculty that came out of Wisconsin because the University of Wisconsin was central to the aspirations of the state. So we need to win that fight, which is a a fight about hearts and minds. It's an ideological struggle. But even if we win those things at the state level, we have to imagine the vision and future of public higher ed collectively. And so while we're building at the fundamental level of Rutgers and trying to build a strong union, we also recognize that we need a movement of higher ed workers and students that are fighting over the future of higher education collectively, which is why we've come together. Donna and I have been involved with many other people building something called Higher Ed Labor United, which is trying to link up all the important fights on the ground to link up the fight at UC and UC and at Rutgers and in University of Illinois or at the new school together to say there's a crisis in higher ed and to start to win a vision of how to solve that crisis at the federal level. So we can't solve all of the problems with a strong, organized workforce at Rutgers. That's critical. We can't solve any problems without that. But we need that, that foundation to then lead to the building out of a national movement. And that national movement, to return to a question you asked earlier, can't be workers alone. It has to be workers and students and the families of those students demanding something different in our higher ed program. That was beautifully said. I don't know if I have anything to add. I agree. Donna Merch and Todd Wolfson, thank you both very much. It's our pleasure. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you so much, Dan. This was fantastic. That was Donna Merch and Todd Wolfson. Donna Murch is a professor of history at Rutgers University, where she is chapter president of the New Brunswick chapter of Rutgers AAUP AFT. Her newest book is Asada Taught Me, State Violence, Racial Capitalism, and the Movement for Black Lives. Todd Wolfson is a professor in the Department of Journalism and Media Studies at Rutgers and has written and edited three books, including The Gig Economy, Workers in the Media in the Age of Convergence. Todd is a co-founder of Movement Alliance Project and 215 People's Alliance and is vice president of Rutgers AAUP AFT. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, the communists have not invented the intervention of society and education. They do but seek to alter the character of that intervention and to rescue education from the influence of the ruling class. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. We're recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Theorio Frankos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, you can also leave us a glowing review. 
those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you spreading the word to your friends. Please make propaganda for us and do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. 